Who is Jesus? Who is this figure that has imprinted Himself so deeply upon the consciousness of mankind over the last roughly 2,000 years? Love Him or hate Him, you can't ignore Jesus. He has worshipped the world over. His people are everywhere, from different languages, different skin colors, different socioeconomic backgrounds. Believers and unbelievers alike celebrate His birthday every year. Historically, that's what Christmas is. So who is this Jesus? I mean, who is He really? Beyond simply being a historical figure, a Jewish man who lived some 2,000 years ago. Unsurprisingly, the biblical writer Matthew, his priority in the opening section of his account of the life of Jesus is to introduce us to Jesus. What a surprise that he should open up his story of the life of Jesus in such a manner. Matthew's priority in chapter 1 of his gospel is to introduce us to Jesus. He wants to really introduce us. He wants us to really get who Jesus is. And that's the point of His genealogy. For centuries, the Jewish people had been expecting someone. Matthew is using the genealogy to point out that Jesus is the one that they had been expecting all along. And then Matthew uses the angel's appearance to Joseph at the end of Matthew chapter 1 to elaborate further on who Jesus is. In Matthew chapter 1 alone, Matthew uses five titles for Jesus in order to give us a well-rounded introduction to who Jesus is. So we'll look at each of those five titles this evening. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Son of David. Jesus is the son of Abraham. Jesus is Joshua. Jesus is Emmanuel. As we enter the Christmas season uh, this year, what could be more a more fitting subject to consider? Who is Jesus? Regardless of how little or how much you know about Jesus and whether you're a believer yet or not, let's all take a look at the beautiful picture the beautiful portrait that Matthew paints here in Matthew chapter 1. And my hope is that we'll all leave here this evening with our hearts captured by Jesus, by the biblical Jesus. So let's begin with the title of Christ. Jesus is the Christ. Look at verse 1 of Matthew chapter 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Many people think of Christ as being Jesus' last name or something like that. But Christ is a title like president or coach in normal parlance referring to a high school basketball team's coach or a high school football team's coach, uh, uh, any sports team's coach, we might say Coach Jim. We mean Jim, who is the coach, right? If we say Jim the coach, we don't mean that the coach is his last name. We're just identifying that Jim is the coach of this team, the trainer of this team. 
So in the same way that coach or trainer is not Jim's last name, but just specifies the office that he holds, so Christ is not Jesus' last name, but merely specifies the office that he holds. Jesus is the Christ. We know what a trainer is, but do we know what a Christ is? What is a Christ? Well, D.A. Carson who's a scholar at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, says Christ is roughly the Greek equivalent to Messiah or anointed. So when we read Jesus Christ in the New Testament, it basically means Jesus the Messiah. And we see the word Messiah in the Old Testament. God's anointed one. There's this promise of an anointed one who would come. In the Old Testament, the term Messiah or anointed could refer to a variety of people anointed for some special function. We see it referring to priests, kings, and metaphorically, uh, the patriarchs and the pagan king Cyrus even in Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 1. So the title itself is actually not unique to Jesus, but if it means anointed, the question would naturally arise, what was Jesus Anointed for? What kind of anointed one was he? What kind of Messiah was he? What kind of Christ was he? What was Jesus anointed for? What was Jesus' mission for which God anointed him? Hold that thought and we'll come back to it. The second title that we see in Matthew chapter 1 is Son of David. Again, look at Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Matthew takes great pains to make sure we know that Jesus is the son of David. Why? Because in spite of all these Old Testament messiahs, priests, kings, patriarchs, the pagan king Cyrus, there was this expectation that there would be one ultimate messiah who was going to come. One ultimate anointed one who was going to come. One ultimate Christ who was going to come. There was this expectation that all these other anointed ones are down here. But there's this ultimate one who's coming. The the Messiah to end all Messiahs is coming. And he is going to be the son of David. This is what the Old Testament tells us. This idea that the Christ and the Messiah would be the son of David is repeated throughout the Old Testament, but it originates in 2 Samuel chapter 7 when God makes a covenant with David, promising in in verses 12 and 13 that I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. The prophet Ezekiel develops this theme by referring to the coming Messiah, the Christ, the son of David, by the name of David himself. Ezekiel 34, 23 says, I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. Ezekiel 37 and verse 24, my servant David shall be king over them and they shall all have one shepherd. There is this expectation throughout the Old Testament, that this ultimate Messiah would be a descendant of David, a son of David. David himself knew that, and David himself longed for the appearance of that Messiah. 
And in Psalm 110, which David wrote, seeing this coming Messiah way down the line with the eyes of prophecy, David called the Messiah Lord. Even though the Messiah would be his descendant. And in that culture, your son could never be greater than you. Your fathers were always greater than you. But David, seeing this coming Messiah with the eyes of prophecy, as it were, bows before his descendant. This son of mine who is coming will be my Lord. Considering what an important figure David himself is in the Bible's storyline, what a magnificently important figure the son of David, this coming Messiah, must be. Now, if you're following closely as we read Matthew chapter 1 earlier, you may have wondered why on earth Matthew structures his genealogy in three groups of 14. We see that in verses 17. In verse 17 of Matthew chapter 1, all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now we actually know from uh, uh, comparing genealogies with the Old Testament that there was actually technically, literally, to be precise, more than 14 generations at various stages between these things. This is not an error in the Bible. This is just a different way of recording genealogies than we would normally do it in the 21st century West. We would normally say for scientific exact, exactitude, we want to include every single uh, person in our ancestry if we were to write a genealogy. But in the first century uh, Jewish mind, that wasn't a big deal. You would record a genealogy to make a point. And so the way that uh, certain people in, in Barbados might trace their ancestry back and say, you know, I'm the son of so-and-so from four generations ago or five generations ago. They're not saying that they're literally the son, but they're just trying to make the point that I'm descended from such and such. And so omitting, uh, gene- omitting generations was not considered to be an error or was not considered to be deceptive in the first century Jewish mind. So Matthew is making an editorial decision to include 14 generations at each of these stages. Why does he do that? Well, D.A. Carson, again, is helpful here. He says, In the ancient world, letters served not only as the building blocks of words, but also as a symbol of numbers. Hence, any word had a numerical value. The numerical value of David in Hebrew is, can you guess it? 14. Which means that Matthew's genealogy of 14, 14, 14 is screaming to us, David, David, David. Jesus is the Christ the son of David. This is what we've seen so far of Matthew's introduction to Jesus. Let's move on to the third title that Matthew gives us of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. The son of Abraham. Look again at verse 1. Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Long before God ever promised to David that he would set one of his descendants on David's throne forever, 
God promised to Abraham in Genesis 22.18 that in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Paul tells us in Galatians that Jesus is the son of Abraham who brings blessings to the nations of the earth. Jesus is the one who brought the promise made in Genesis 22.18 to fulfillment. Over those hundreds and thousands of years, the Jewish people have been expecting a son of Abraham and then a son of David to come who would be the Messiah. And Matthew's point, which you should get by now, is that Jesus is the fulfillment of all these Old Testament expectations. Jesus is the long-expected Messiah. Jesus is the long-expected Son of David. Jesus is the long-expected Son of Abraham. Jesus is the centerpiece of the Scriptures. As William Ames, an old Puritan, said, the Old and New Testaments are reducible to these two primary heads. The Old Testament promises Christ to come, and the New testifies that He has come. In other words, the New Testament is intimately connected to the Old Testament. The Bible follows one unified storyline centered around the Messiah or the Christ. Marcion was a heretic who wanted to drive a wedge between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. He cut genealogies out of his edition of the Scriptures. F.F. Bruce comments, Christ and the New Covenant are securely linked to the age of the Old Covenant. Marcion, who wished to sever all the links binding Christianity to the Old Testament, knew what he was about to do when he cut the genealogy out of his edition. In referring to Jesus the Christ as the son of David, the son of Abraham, even the category of the Christ itself, Matthew is making the point crystal clear that Jesus is the long-expected Christ, the fulfillment of the promises, the substance of the shadows. The God of the Old Testament is the same God as the God of the New Testament. He has one unfolding plan and one unfolding purpose which comes to a head in the sending of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to live and to die and to rise and to ascend and to return to save sinners. This is what the Bible is all about. This is the unified storyline of the Bible. Jesus is the centerpiece of the Scriptures. He is the hinge upon which the entire storyline of the Bible turns. Jesus is unlike any figure in the Bible, either before or after Him. Jesus is the centerpiece of the Scripture. And Matthew's introduction to Jesus makes that clear. Jesus is what the Old Testament has been driving toward, and Jesus will be the substance of the New Testament. Now remember I asked you a while back to consider what the mission of Jesus was for which He was anointed. What was Jesus, the son of David, anointed for? How will Jesus be the Messiah? How would all the nations of the earth be blessed by this son of Abraham? It's time to answer all these questions. Let's look at the fourth title for Jesus given in Matthew chapter 1. 
The fourth title is Savior. I said earlier Joshua because I wanted to leave it a little bit hidden. But Joshua means Savior. Joshua means Yahweh saves. Jesus, which is the equivalent name to Joshua, means Yahweh saves. Look at verse 21. You shall call His name Yahweh saves. That's what it says. That's what it means. You shall call His name Yahweh saves, for He will save His people from their sins. Jesus is to be a Savior. And the angel says, You shall call His name Jesus, for... This is language of purpose and intentionality in naming Jesus. For most of us, we just got our names maybe because our parents liked the sound of our names. Maybe they named us after a relative. They gave us a name perhaps with a meaning that they hoped we would grow into. But when God sent His angel to Joseph, He commanded a name for the Messiah that would be descriptive of His work. And God was not just hoping that this little baby would grow up to be a Savior. God knew, in fact, God decreed from eternity past that this little baby would certainly save His people from their sins. So on the one hand, Jesus was just His name. But on the other hand, Jesus was His function. Jesus means Yahweh saves. And it is through Jesus, in Jesus, that Yahweh saves. In fact, Jesus is Yahweh who saves. It is through Jesus that Yahweh saves from sin. This is the mission of Jesus. To save His people from their sins. That's what verse 21 tells us. Jesus, the Messiah, was anointed for what work? The work of saving His people from their sins. Jesus, the Son of David, came to be what kind of king? To deliver us from what kind of enemy? Something far more sinister than Goliath and the Philistine army. Jesus came to save His people from their sins. Jesus, the Son of Abraham, came to bless all the nations of the earth. How? By ransoming people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. To deliver people from every tribe and language and people and nation from their sins. In that way will all the nations of the earth be blessed through the Son of Abraham. Jesus came to save His people from their sins. Sin is our biggest problem. Sin is any transgression against or lack of conformity unto God's law. In other words, sin is doing what God forbids or failing to do what God requires. In even more simple terms, sin is doing what we shouldn't and failing to do what we should. In our natural state, we human beings all stand guilty before God as sinners. And our sin not only stands as a legal mark against us, but it has a corrupting effect on our constitution. Not only are we guilty, we are corrupt. 
and further we live in a corrupted world. Sin has messed us up thoroughly. It's messed up our legal record. It's messed up our hearts so that our hearts are oriented towards sin and away from God. And it's messed up this world. This world is unraveling. God said to Adam after he fell into sin in the garden, Cursed is the ground because of you. Sin has done a number on the created order. It has made us guilty and corrupt and it has even caused the unraveling and the decay and the disintegration of the created order itself. Jesus came to save His people from their sins. Jesus came to undo all of these adverse effects of sin for the people who will believe in Him. Jesus came to save His people from their sins both from its penalty and its power. Not only did Jesus come to save us from hell, but as Matthew Henry said, Christ came to save His people, not in their sins, but from their sins. Christ came to purchase them for them, not a liberty to sin, but a liberty from sins. Jesus came even to reverse the curse that is upon our environment because of Adam's sin. As I mentioned a moment ago, God said to Adam, Cursed is the ground because of you. And it is as if God says to Jesus Christ, the second Adam, Blessed, blessed shall be the ground because of you. As the Christmas carol that we will sing in closing, Joy to the World goes, He comes to make His blessings flow far as the curse is found. For those who trust in Jesus, wherever you will find any cursedness, wherever you see any cursedness around you, if you belong to Jesus, If you are trusting in Him, He will undo that cursedness and issue in blessedness in its place. By shifting our confidence away from ourselves onto Jesus, which is the the biblical meaning of faith or belief. It's not merely just acknowledging that Jesus came and that He was a real Jewish man who lived, but trusting Him. By shifting confidence away from ourselves and our own sense of righteousness, our own sense of worthiness, away from our own law-keeping to Jesus and His law-keeping for us, His righteousness, by trusting that He, by His death on the cross, has answered the demands of the law for our punishment as our substitute. By shifting our confidence onto Jesus, we become His. We come to belong to Him. We're pardoned for our sins and accepted as righteous in God's sight. And so He saves us from the power of hell. But He doesn't just change our legal record. He changes our hearts. Regeneration and justification are inseparable. That He not only justifies us legally, but He regenerates us. He gives us a new heart and changes us qualitatively. And He is making all things new. Jesus is even lifting the curse off of this fallen world that has been placed upon it because of the first Adam. 
Jesus has come to usher in a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells so that those who have been justified, those who have been regenerated and made qualitatively new will have somewhere to live for eternity in glorified bodies. He comes to make His blessings flow far as the curse is found. For those who are in Christ Jesus, wherever the curse is found, right there, in that very place, either is now or shall one day be blessedness. The last title for Jesus from Matthew 1 is found in verse 23. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit within the Virgin Mary, the second person of the Trinity became flesh and dwelt among us. As John Warden 14 says. What a wonder the incarnation is. But wonder of wonders. The incarnation occurred. God becoming flesh. So that the second person of the Trinity would always be with us. So that the whole Trinity would always be with us. So that the dwelling place of God would be with man forever. This is one central end of the gospel. One central goal of the gospel. To bring us into such intimacy of relationship with God. That we will actually live in His very presence forevermore. Consider the following passages. 1 Peter 3, verse 18. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. 1 Thessalonians 4, 17. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Ezekiel 37, 27. This promise of the new covenant. My dwelling place shall be with them. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. And Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. And He will dwell with them. They will be His people and God Himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making 
everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. The second person of the Trinity became flesh and dwelt among us in order to save His people from their sins, in order that He could always dwell among us, in order that we could always dwell with Him, in order that we would be brought into communion with the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, so that we and God would always be together. This is something of the import of this title, Emmanuel, God with us. Not just God with us temporarily, but God with us on a redemptive mission in order that God would be with us permanently. And so, Emmanuel is a beautiful title for Jesus because it speaks of the relational goal of the Gospel. That His people would be reconciled to God that His people would dwell with Him and He with us forever. That we would be God's sons and daughters and that God would be to us a Father. Matthew Henry said, By the light of nature, we see God as above us. By the light of the law, we see God as against us. And by the light of the Gospel, we see Him as Emmanuel, God with us. So Jesus, the Christ, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham, the Savior, God with us, came to save His people from their sins, the penalty for their sins, the power of their sins over them, and eventually even the sin-stained environment that they live in. God is in and through His Son, Jesus Christ, making all things new, as we read from Revelation. And He will live with us forever in the new heavens and in the new earth, unstained by sin. And we ourselves will be, on that last day, unstained by sin. Oh, the glory of it all. What a wonderful gospel. What a wonderful Jesus. How should we respond? Sometimes God's Word calls for a response of our time. Sometimes God's Word calls for a response of our energy or our money or our discipline, or our priorities. But sometimes, like tonight, God's Word simply calls for a response of our hearts. When you hear that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham, the Savior, God with us, come to save His people from their sins, whether for the first time, Whether this is dawning on you for the first time, it's like you've heard it for the first time, even if you've heard it many times before. Or whether this is really the thousandth time you've heard it and whether it's dawned on you before. Whether the first time or the thousandth time, believe this. Believe it. Believe that this is who Jesus is. This portrait that Matthew paints of Jesus calls for a heart response of belief. If you're not a believer yet, maybe you would call yourself a Christian, and yet you've never really thought about Jesus in these terms. Maybe you would call yourself a Christian, but you've never really heard the gospel preached in this way. You've never really thought about sin and guilt and the corruption 
of sin, not only in yourself, but in this world and how Jesus is undoing it. Maybe you've misunderstood biblical Christianity. Change your mind. Think of Jesus this way. Think of the Gospel this way. Or if you're already a Christian, if this has been a reminder for you, solidify your belief in Jesus. Believe in the historicity of Jesus. Believe in His lineage from Abraham to David and all the way to Joseph and Mary. And believe in the historicity of His virgin birth as the Christ the Anointed One, the Savior, God with us. Believe the report that Matthew gives us, well attested by Scripture, as well as by many eyewitnesses, and the only plausible explanation for Jesus' ongoing impact in the world today. Believe in Jesus. And trust in Jesus. Think about it like this. I believe in the historicity of the Apostle Matthew as much as I believe in the historicity of Jesus. But I don't trust in Matthew. I believe what he said about Jesus in the Gospel that he wrote. And so I trust him in that sense. But I don't rely on Matthew. I don't rely on the strength that Matthew provides day by day. I don't expect Matthew to save me from my sins. And I am not expecting Matthew to return from heaven and deliver me from this sin-broken world by making all things new. And Matthew himself wouldn't want me to trust him like that. Matthew's point is not only that Jesus is historical, not only that he really is descended from Abraham and David and so forth, Matthew's not merely aiming at our cognitive assent to the historicity of Jesus. Matthew's point is that Jesus as the Christ, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham, the Savior, God with us, is worthy of our trust. According to Matthew, Jesus was born of a virgin, lived sinlessly, died on a cross, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and lives forevermore as the proper object of our ongoing trust and reliance. So trust in Jesus. Again, getting, having got all the facts right in your mind, actually trust in Him. Rely upon Him. Wait in eager expectation for Him to return and to make all things new. Which leads us to a third heart response. Not only belief, cognitive assent, not only trust, relying on this Jesus, but hope. Hope in Jesus. Begin for the first time. If you've never really come to Christ in that kind of trust that I was just talking about, believe in Him for the first time. Or renew, if you're already a Christian, renew your hoping and your longing and your waiting for that day when Jesus will return. Meditate on the outstanding and not yet fulfilled promises of the Gospel, such as Revelation 21, 1-5, which I read earlier, where the following things are promised, a new heaven and a new earth, God's dwelling place among His people, God wiping every tear from our eyes, no more death or mourning or crying or pain. These things have been promised, but haven't happened yet. 
So hope in Christ for the fulfillment of these things. They're certain and sure. They're decreed by God. They will happen in due time. Set your hope there. Long for these things. Wait for these things. Hope in Christ. Hope with the certainty and the expectancy that is fitting, considering that He who promised is faithful. As we read from Revelation 21 and verse 5. And then lastly, if Jesus is the Christ, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham, the Savior, God with us, and He is, and if by believing, trusting, and hoping in Jesus, you can count yourself in as one of His people, which you can, then this wonderful statement belongs to you to cherish as a promise. You shall call His name Jesus, for He shall save His people from their sins. If He really is who Matthew portrays Him to be, and if you really have come to trust in Him, then you can insert your name there. His name is Jesus, for He came to save you. 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 From your sins. You have been justified, saved from sin's penalty. You have been and are being sanctified, saved from sin's power. You will be saved from this sin-cursed environment someday, either when you die or when Jesus returns. If you are among His people, Jesus will save you from your sins and every way that sin affects you. What grounds for rejoicing? Not only believing, not only trusting, not only hoping, but rejoicing now and all the way home. Well, I said lastly with rejoice, but that was second lastly. This is the lastly. Worship. Worship. Not only believe, not only trust, not only hope, not only rejoice, but worship. As the hymn we sang earlier, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, goes, Glory to the newborn King. Glory to the newborn King. We ought to fall on our faces in believing, trusting, hoping, joyful adoration before Jesus Christ, the Lord, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham, the Savior, God with us. After Jesus' resurrection, one of the disciples named Thomas did not believe that Jesus had risen from the dead. He said, Unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and place my finger into the marks of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Well, Jesus showed up and graciously condescended to allow Thomas to do just that. Here, John chapter 21, verse 27. Then Jesus said to Thomas, Put your fingers here. See my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered, My Lord and my God. My point is this. Having believed, it is absurd not also to cry out, My Lord and my God. As soon as Thomas 
believed, he cried out in worship. It should be that way with us too. So along with believing, trusting, hoping, and rejoicing, we must also worship and adore our Lord and our God, Jesus the Christ, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham, the Savior, God with us. This Christmas season, may every one of us <clears throat> either come for the first time to this heart response to the Jesus that Matthew shows us in chapter 1 or continue relating to the Jesus that Matthew shows us in chapter 1 with all of the things that I just mentioned. Belief, trust, hope, joy, and worship.